0: I-O-9 presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley.
1: Hello, and welcome to episode 50 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy.
2: Hi, this is John Joseph Adams. I'm the editor of Lightspeed Magazine, and I also recently took over as publisher. The first year of Lightspeed's fiction is now available in print form in the anthology Lightspeed Year One. Uh, my next books to come out are Under the Moons of Mars in February and Armored in April. And I'm David Barr-Kirtley. I'm the
1: author of many short stories, including Veil of Ignorance, about a group of friends who experiment with a mind-bending alien drug. The story originally appeared in the anthology All the Rage this year, and also in episode one of the Mech Muse podcast. And our guest today is Chuck Palahniuk. He's the author of novels such as Haunted, Rant, Snuff, and Tell All. His novels Fight Club and Choke were both adapted for film. His work is often shocking, and almost 70 people are reported to have fainted while listening to him read his short story Guts. His latest novel, Damned, is about a teenage girl who dies and goes to hell.
2: All right, so let's get to our interview.
1: All right, so we're here with Chuck Palahniuk. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Okay, so at your public appearances, you ask trivia questions and throw inflatable toys into the crowd. Uh, How did you first get that idea, and when did you first start doing it?
3: You know, and every event is different. Those are just a couple of different elements that I might use. But years ago, you know, maybe the third or the fourth year I was doing tours, I found myself just hating the task. And I thought that if I gave away prizes or, or gifts when people ask a question, I could not simultaneously be hostile and give them something and so I started to buy these kind of big outlandish pieces of costume jewelry usually uh, tiaras and crowns in every city I went to before we did the event we would go to a, a Claire's and buy all of their sort of beauty queen tiaras and it worked you know matter how tired I was or how starving I was or how much I had to take a leak If I gave them something, that physical gesture trumped all of my internal crappiness, and I ended up actually liking it and really loving the process. Uh, Usually the the two hardest things in a book event are to get the questions started and then, ironically, to end the questions. But if people see that you've got 16 tiaras, (laughs) then they're instantly clamoring to ask a question. And as they see the tiaras dwindle, they know that the last tiara means the last question, and so I've, I've been able to structure that part of each book event that was just so difficult before.
2: Um, okay, so it's been re- it's been reported that over seventy people have fainted while lis- listening to you read your short story guts, um, and I and I just listened to an interview where you said that you were working on something that makes that makes guts look tame by comparison. Uh, could you tell us about
3: that? No way, no way. I've got two <laughs> stories that will both totally eclipse guts. In the public mind, but uh, I'm not saying anything about them. I'm not going <laughs> to spoil that thunder until I, the stories are ready.
2: Uh, so, uh, what was it? What was it like the first time you read guts and had uh, people start fainting?
3: The first time, I didn't realize that someone had fainted because the crowd was that big and it was somebody standing towards the back where there was <laughs> no seating left. And I didn't realize that a young man had fainted, and he was kind of rescued by the people around him. But the time that I was most aware of it was a couple readings later in San Francisco at the old Cody's bookstore on Telegraph up by the University of California. And a couple people in the very center of this banked auditorium, right in the middle of my vision, they fainted on their neighbors. And the whole place just went nuts. And it was just terrific to watch because suddenly instead of 700 people looking at me, it was me looking at 700 people, and I was completely forgotten in the room as everyone went to rescue these two people that everyone seemed to have thought had died. And as these people came back to life, the crowd just went nuts. They were so euphoric, like they had seen uh, Lazarus raised from the dead. Uh, okay, so
2: your, your new novel, Damned, is uh, sort of like The Breakfast Club Goes to Hell. Uh, which character from The Breakfast Club were you most like in high school?
3: Ali Sheedy. There was a really lovely woman named Glenda Haas who moved to our school maybe in sixth grade. And her parents had a, a shop where they sold western clothing in a town nearby. And so the, the perception was that they were wealthy people. And Glenda was very pretty and she had a southern accent. And I had a, a crush on her, one of those seventh grade crushes. And one day she was taking books out of her locker and a book Fell and it caught the string of beads that was hanging around her neck and broke the string and as the beads fell down I saw my chance and I went forward and I helped her gather them all up and as I was giving them to her she very sweetly looked up and and said "Uh, you're a very nice person you're a very sweet, sweet person and uh, it surprises me because when I moved here Everyone in the school told me that y'all was retarded,
0: <laughs>
3: and that was heartbreaking. You know, not just to hear it from her, but to find out that it was something that was being commonly told to total strangers by people who I thought were my friends.
1: So, so when you wrote "damned" and sort of, you know, sort of put yourself in the head of a, a kind of teenage character, was that was that did that bring back painful memories from that uh, time in your life?
3: No. No, really, I only tell the Glenda Hawes story in relation to the uh, story called Romance that I'm reading on tour this year. I was watching the Sean Penn movie, I Am Sam. And the premise is that Sean Penn, who is severely retarded, has uh, a very young daughter by a woman who apparently was with him long enough to get pregnant. And that works that way in that I could conceive of a woman thinking that Sean Penn is just this very good-looking, very drunk guy and going home with him one night or one weekend and and getting pregnant. But turning it around, I had to think, you know, how good-looking would a woman have to be before a man would start to overlook fantastically aberrant behavior? And how much would he have to deceive himself in order to continue to be in love with this incredibly good-looking woman? And so that was the inspiration for romance. Romance is metaphorically about what it's like to, to fall in love with an idea and to think that that idea is all that you will ever need. And you isolate yourself with the idea, and you exist with nothing but that idea for weeks or for months at a time. But eventually you have to introduce that idea that you love so much. You have to introduce it to your friends and your family. And at that point, depending on whether or not they see the same value in the idea, uh, you're confronted by either having to betray your friends and family or betray uh, your inspiration, the thing that you love so much.
2: Okay, and then uh, how did you go about uh, constructing your vision of hell, and uh, uh, what kind of research did you do?
3: Leonard's character is the one that knows all about demonology, that kind of cross-cultural uh, theology based on, on demons and what each culture considers evil, what they blame disasters on. And so just all reading all the books about demonology was the most research I did. Also research on Halloween – I fell in love with Halloween when I found out that it used to be just a night of fantastic property damage, that Halloween really was a night when, in small cities and towns, all slights, all injustices were avenged. And it really, it was a night that you went and you killed your neighbor's dog, or you set their barn on fire, or you knocked their fence down, or you cut their tires. And it wasn't until the 1920s that... City governments started to conspire with major newspapers and with candy makers and they started to organize media campaigns where they would offer, uh, troublemakers candy in exchange for not burning down the town every, every Halloween. And so what we think of as Halloween is really the product of media barons, city mayors, and candy makers. You know, Before the 1920s, Halloween was really a terrible, terrible night.
1: I heard you uh, read a short story uh, called Cold Calling that's about a telemarketer, and telemarketing also features prominently in Dan. Uh, could you say, like, what is it about telemarketing that makes it a subject that you are, in- are interested in writing about?
3: The original Cold Calling story was from five or six years ago, and it was never published. I, I sold the rights to that to Nickelodeon, so I don't hold those rights anymore. But I like the, uh, the, the almost accidental way in which people are connected by a machine. More applicable to Damned was that I wrote the book while I was taking care of my mother who was dying. And telemarketing calls were some of the only breaks mm-hmm. in my day, the only times when I had kind of contact with the outside world. And so when a telemarketer would call, I would find myself trying to keep them on the line longer than they wanted to talk. So it was a kind of ironic turnabout.
2: Okay, so I need to jump in here. And, and uh, you uh, you sold rights to a story <laughs> to Nickelodeon. I'm having a hard time imagining how Nickelodeon would be involved with Chuck Palahniuk. Uh, can you explain that?
3: Oh, Over the years, there's been a, several different sort of floated television projects that I've been brought on board to help with. And one was an idea for Nickelodeon that I was brought on board to to help develop, and I I proposed this this telemarketing angle, and they liked it, so they bought the original story. You know, it was actually a very clean little story, just this very innocent back and forth between a a kid and and another kid uh, as they gradually lied to each other more and more. It was a very clean story that way.
2: So, you know, since we're a science fiction and fantasy podcast uh, primarily, uh, uh, are you actually a science fiction fan yourself? And uh, if so, what are some of your who are some of your favorite authors?
3: I am going back I'm very much an old school Ray Bradbury kind of guy and Stephen King kind of guy. And again, mostly short stories. Anything from Martian Chronicles, I really loved. And I still remember the first time I read uh, Night Shift. I was really blown away by it.
2: Uh, So in 2008, uh, you taught at the Clarion West uh, Science Fiction Writers Workshop, and uh, and I just saw that you're going to be back again this summer. Um, What sort of experiences did you have the last time you were there?
3: Um, I worked with about 20 really fantastically bright people. I think that they screen people very, very carefully to get the very best people into those programs, and that there wasn't a person there who didn't have a fantastic idea. And so what I mostly focused on was helping them write their ideas clearly as possible and, and uh, develop it to something that they could bring to market.
2: You know, you sort of started off uh, as more of a mainstream type of author, and, and and as you've progressed in your career, you've had more and more sort of uh, more and more of your work has sort of blended into the genre, like uh, horror and, and, and whatnot. And uh, is that something that you, cons- you, you would see yourself moving towards more, or are you just sort of going to bounce back and forth uh, throughout genres uh, your whole career, do you think?
3: You know, what I first did, the first few books, if they had to fall in kind of a a genre, or classification, they were what people used to call transgressive writing, where you had people doing illegal things, kind of extreme things, but for noble reasons. And that became a little unpalatable after 9-11, that we weren't accepting transgressive acts as sympathetically anymore. And so I think that's when the idea of going to a, a genre like horror or science fiction uh, seemed like a, a much more effective avenue for doing social commentary. And it won't always be that case, you know, the farther we get from nine eleven. But I think it's still the case right now.
2: So
1: when you're teaching at a, at a workshop like that, do you pass along the lessons that you learned from Tom Spanbauer, or do you have a, a different approach that you take?
3: I pass along what I learned from every writer that I wish I'd known when I was younger, you know, lessons from Tom Spanbauer and from writers like Peter Christopher, uh, every writer that I have met and interacted with, um, David Sedaris, uh, Neil Gaiman, Clive Barker, if they taught me something that was really effective, it's something I want to pass on to people, especially if they're younger people who might not learn these things for years.
1: Could you think about just off the top of your head what, what any of those lessons were? Could you put that into words?
3: No abstract measurements. You know, when you, when someone walks in and you say a six foot tall man, you've missed the opportunity to describe what a six foot tall man would be for your narrator. Because how the narrator describes a six foot tall man is, says more about the narrator than about the the man. And so every time you use an abstract, you're using a shortcut that is cheating you out of some really fantastic opportunity.
1: I mean, could you talk about uh, the, the Tom Spanbauer workshop that you were in and sort of how you got involved with
0: that?
3: In my early 30s, when I wanted to be a writer, I joined a workshop that was all very nice ladies, more or less writing uh, kind of child in peril thrillers. They all wanted to be published writing these stories about children being murdered or kidnapped, but all in peril. And my stories were so upsetting to them. My stories were just too confronting. They had too much violence and too much sexuality in them. Nothing was really hidden off screen. uh, And that was just too much for them. They would leave almost in tears sometimes.
1: Well, like I heard you tell one thing about this uh, this uh blow-up doll that's deflating.
3: That was the straw that broke the camel's back. <clears throat> it was the blow-up doll scene that I later used in Snuff, uh, where the kid is, is trying to fornicate with this doll that he has dressed up to look like his ideal, and he realizes the doll has a slow leak, and so it becomes this race to, to fulfill his needs before the doll is, is completely this flat, wrinkled thing. And... That was the scene that got me kicked out of workshop.
1: <laughs> and and did they say, like, like, we don't feel safe with you here or something like that?
3: They always say, uh, there are members of the group who no longer feel comfortable having you in the workshop. But as a kind of consolation, they suggested that a man had just moved from New York to Portland, and his name was Tom Spanbauer, and he was teaching the style called minimalism that he had learned at Columbia from a famous teacher, famous editor, named Gordon Lish, who was uh, Raymond Carver's editor. And uh, they put me in touch with Tom, and I was one of Tom's first four students, and that was in 1990, August of 1990, and that's when I really started to write.
1: Uh, so, so your novel, Damned, uh, it features this really devastating satire of these do-gooder movie stars, you know, Madison's parents. Uh, is that all in good fun, or are you genuine, genuinely appalled by people like that?
3: I'm, I'm kind of more or less appalled by people who preach kind of a eco, ecological awareness, but that their lifestyles, you know, consume so much resources. When we were in Sundance in Park City, Utah, for the launch of the Choke movie, I was always struck by the hundreds and hundreds of Lincoln Navigators that were lined up everywhere and constantly running so that they would be warm when their celebrities came out of whatever the venue was and all of these Lincoln Navigators burning all this gas lined up for miles, all had no blood for oil bumper stickers. (laughs) And uh, it was just such a shocking, horrible hypocrisy. Part of the inspiration for my book, Tell All is that every really beautiful, fantastically groomed actress had a kind of dowdy, dumpy, very plain assistant or team of assistants who would sort of act as this kind of remote support and always travel a few, you know, a dozen feet behind the this beautiful object that they maintained and that at any moment when the object was disturbed, this team would rush forward and intensely groom it, restore it to its perfection, and then they would immediately remove themselves from its vicinity so that they would never be photographed with it. And that was just amazing to watch.
2: How did you feel about the film adaptations of Fight Club and Choke uh, changing the endings of the books?
3: I didn't mind. You know, that's part of the the bargain is that if they're going to put that much money and energy and time into the story, I think they should have some freedom to interpret, adapt the story. But I thought it was interesting that they both cut out the kind of third act scene in which the hero is – Completely humiliated and subjugated before his peer group, and I have to wonder if there's some aspect of movie making culture that uh, that can't allow itself to experience that kind of public humiliation.
2: So, so like in, uh, so in Fight Club*, I know there's a, there's an interesting story you sort of tell on the director commentary where uh, uh, there's a you know where Marla uh, f- uh, utters her famous line about
3: uh... if I remember right when, when I wrote it. My first thought was, when Tyler and Marla wake up together, what is the most romantic thing that Marla could say, the most sentimental thing? And that would be, I want to have your baby. And so being Marla, she had to say the opposite. So it was just by formula that she had to say, I want to have your abortion. And so that's what went into the book. But everyone hated that line, even Brad Pitt you know, came to the producers and said, my mother is going to see this movie and my mother is going to be so offended by that line. So everyone wanted to change it and they floated a lot of different versions. And I think Fincher finally came up with, I haven't been fucked like that since grade school. (laughs) And when he shot it that way, Laura Ziskin, the producer went nuts and said, change it back for the love of God. (laughs) And Fincher was so thrilled that he had come up with something worse that that's what he went with.
1: (laughs) And then Brad Pitt's mom, she was okay with that one?
3: I have no idea. You know, I think by that point, it had been such a drawn-out process that it was kind of a a line in the sand. This is what we're going to go with. We got rid of the thing that you hated. You got something you hated more, so just be careful about what you complain about in the future.
1: Actually, no. You know, I heard you, you read this story about this, this boy who grows up with a dad always telling these jokes, these sort of oh, bad— Oh, the knock-knock, yeah. Uh, where, where did you get all those jokes? I mean, was there like a book of bad jokes you used, or had you heard them? or?
3: I think I learned all those, sto- those jokes in second grade. Second grade is really where they, they tell you those horrific jokes, uh, uh, racist jokes and uh, misogynistic jokes that you have no idea what they mean and you just memorize them because you know they have a a very strong effect, that they make people laugh in this kind of nervous, horrible way. And it's only later that you realize that you've got a head full of crap at that point.
1: So at, uh, at your recent appearances that I've seen, you sort of start things off with this anecdote about an oncologist. Could you talk about that?
3: The, earlier this summer, I was at a charity dinner, and I was seated across the table from an a oncologist, a cancer specialist. He was telling this funny story, what he considered a funny story about sitting on an airplane drinking a glass of wine. And the woman next to him starts talking to him, and she's saying how much she loves wine, and she would love to have a glass of wine. And she used to drink a glass of wine every night until recently. Every time she started to drink wine, she would feel this fantastic, sharp pain in the base of her throat. And so she had decided, she's explaining to this doctor that God doesn't want her to drink wine anymore uh, because she feels this pain any time she drinks wine or beer or any kind of alcohol. And so this, this doctor drinking his wine sitting next to her on the plane says, ma'am, that's not God. But that's what they call a canary indicator, like a canary in a coal mine. And when you feel a sharp, burning pain at the base of your throat like that, anytime you drink even the smallest amount of alcohol, That is an undeniable symptom that you have Hodgkin's lymphoma. And he gave her his card and said, give your doctor my card and have him call me because I think you have stage four Hodgkin's and you'll probably die very soon. And he said the woman on the plane suddenly wasn't as chatty. She got (laughs) so quiet and that within a few days, uh, this woman's doctor called him and said, you were right. You you hit the nail right on the head. She has Hodgkin's. And, uh, and you could have been a little less of a prick about telling
1: her. <laughs> so was that a thing where he told that story and instantly you were like, oh yeah, I'm using that on the book tour?
3: <laughs> you know, I knew I would use it because it was such an extraordinary, sad, funny little story. But I wasn't sure exactly what the metaphor demonstrated. Um, and then I saw how I could use it to to illustrate the metaphor that I like to talk about with stories. A good story should change the way you see the world. After you hear even the sh- the shortest great story, it should change the way, it should fill you with a little bit of fear. Because now, whenever I drink, and from now on, <laughs> whenever you drink, you will wait for that little pain. Every sip of alcohol, you'll think, am I going to die? Do I have Hodgkin's?" And when you don't feel that pain, the combination of the fear and the alcohol will make you feel better than you ever felt before. And that's how a good story works, is it changes how you feel, but it brings you to a greater appreciation or a greater joy of your, of existence.
1: All right. So, I mean, that basically does it for our questions. Are there any other uh, newer upcoming projects that you're working on? Anything you want to mention?
3: Uh, working on the next two books that come after Damned, so it's going to be three books ultimately, and that's really it. Working on the two stories that will make people forget guts. <laughs> um, Do you have any uh, idea
1: how, how soon those those two stories will be uh, revealed?
3: It's not going to happen. They're definitely tour stories. That uh, something that Tom really taught us was uh, reading our work out loud. And so every week in workshop, whatever you brought, whether it was a scene or a story or a chapter, you had to read it out loud to people so that you would get the spontaneous feedback of of laughter or shock. You would get that completely uncensored feedback of an audience. And so every time I have to tour, I write a story specifically for reading out loud. And that's what got started as. Uh, and so these stories are really won't exist until the next tour because that's when I'll need something to read out loud.
1: And the next tour will be
3: two thousand thirteen if I can help it.
1: Alright, great. Well uh Chuck Polinek, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy.
3: And, oh not uh, at all.
1: Okay. Yeah, and good luck with uh Clarion West this summer, this coming summer. Oh yeah.
3: It'll be fun. It'll be fun.
1: Alright. Nice talking to you. Yeah. Yeah, thank thanks you. a lot. Bye bye. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Chuck Polinick for joining us on the show. All right, for our discussion today we're going to be talking about Satan and we're joined by a special guest geek today, Grady Hendrix. He's one of the founders of the New York Asian Film Festival, which got him profiled by the New Yorker, who noted, quote, "Grady Hendrix doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would enjoy watching a man bite through his arm while masturbating inside a burlap sack, but he is." <laughs> For years, he was a regular film critic for The New York Sun. He's also written for Slate, The Village Voice, Time Out New York, Playboy, and Variety. His first novel, Satan Loves You, is out now. So,
0: Grady, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having
1: me. All right, and so I think we're going to start out just talking about uh, sort of early recollections of Satan, because uh, I can
2: still remember the first time I ever heard the heard the name Satan. Which mm-hmm. was when? This is uh, yeah. I would actually be really interested to hear that from you, since you grew up without any religious upbringing at all. So it must have been a quite different experience for you.
1: You know, yeah, like you're saying. You know, I, I my parents are not religious, so you know, we never went to church or anything. And so, for my birthday one year, my parents bought me Ghost and Goblins for the Nintendo Entertainment System, and then we went down to the this pizza place. And, you know, with some friends. And I was uh, really excited and I was reading the story, you know, quote unquote story out of the, um, you know, instructions manual. And of course the villain in that game is is Satan. And so I'm reading the story to my friends. I'm like, ah, oh, isn't this cool? And I said, you know, and then they're like, you're going to have to go and fight satin. <laughs> and my friend Joe's like, it's not pronounced satin, dumbass. It's pronounced Satan. <laughs> So I still I still remember that it's like I don't know, and still I still think it should be pronounced satin I mean that's how it's spelled but but I mean I don't know what how what were you guys' experience I mean because John you were raised Catholic right
2: yeah I actually went to Catholic school and uh, so uh, yeah you know I mean I I don't really remember like growing up worrying about like about the devil or anything I mean um, I uh, I sort of remember like worrying about hell um, when I was a kid because like you know you're you're sort of. You're sort of indoctrinated to believe that, um, you know, if you do bad things, that you're going to go to hell. And 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 you know, I mean, obviously, I, uh, you know, I was a little kid, but still, I mean, I would see things and I would uh, I would I would worry about like, well, is this a bad enough thing to go to hell for? Or you know, um, what happens if I do something by mistake and and then uh, I don't want to go to hell, you know? And
1: uh... all right, so Grady, how about you? What's uh, what's your story?
2: Well, well, I grew up
0: in South Carolina in a really a really religious home. I mean, a, a sort of uh, a by rote religious home, you know, church and Sunday school every every week and all that. So I grew up sort of immersed in all this stuff. But like John, I never, ever, like Satan was never the big bad, you know? Uh, and in fact, hell always seemed, I mean, you know, when you're a kid, it seems more like a challenge than anything. I mean, like a prison escape movie. If like, I go <laughs> to hell, I can probably get out of it somehow, some way that someone in the last thousands of years of human civilization hasn't thought of. I will, of course, because I'm awesome. Um, So it seemed more exciting and interesting than anything. And, you know, I was even growing up as a kid during the whole satanic panic thing. And, uh, you know, when it was like every other daycare center was secretly a front for an underground table of of devil worshippers who were, like, eating babies. And even that, I mean, we all sort of knew that was BS. It just seemed sort of interesting and intriguing and certainly not threatening or, or scary.
2: Yeah, man. I mean, I don't know what they told me when I was a kid, but man, hell sure seems scary. You know, I mean, like, you know, I I guess that's the the reason why they say scary as hell is a phrase, you know, but I mean, like, seriously, like, I mean, I would freak out about it. Um, Like, I mean, I would, I would think like, well, it's like forever. It's like you're in hell forever. And it's hot. It's really, really hot. I don't think I can stand that heat, you know, and it's like, you know, it's just like, it's, it's something that like, how do you tell that to a child? I don't understand. It seems like cruel and unusual punishment
1: how meaningful is that after billions of years of it? You know, like, well, yeah. if you're or roasting just... in fire for a for a billion years, is it still like, don't you just kind of get used to it after a while? Or, I mean, what, <laughs> what context brain. is there? I mean.
0: <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. Like, um, I mean, to me, it's like the worst punishment someone could have in hell is you're randomly selected for a random amount of time to sit in a chair, and half of you are randomly selected to get piña coladas, and the other half are randomly selected to get, like, you know, burnt alive. And the people getting burnt alive have to look at the people having piña coladas, just to remind them that they could be having the piña colada and not getting, like, third-degree burns on their balls.
1: Well, I heard this thing that are actually the, the idea of hell as this fiery place comes from – there was this place, Gehenna, outside Jerusalem. It was sort of like a garbage dump, and it was always yeah. on fire. And, you know, if you're, if nobody, if when you died, nobody cared enough to give you a good burial, they would just dump your body in the garbage, in this flaming garbage dump. <laughs> and that that kind of, you know, people sort of in in later time sort of misunderstood that and sort of the idea of hell as this otherworldly place came out of that. Well, let, I mean, let's talk about appearances of Satan in the Bible. Um, I mean, you've got the serpent in the Garden of Eden. actually there's there's this really good uh podcast i listen to called the bible geek and a lot of what i'll say about this is just stuff i heard on that podcast um but he was saying that at at the time uh that that story kind of got put together the the garden of eden story that yahweh worship was competing against serpent worship and that you know like lots of people were just worshiping serpents and so the story was just kind of put together because you know, the, the moral of the story is like, hey, don't listen to those serpents. They're fucking liars. You know, if you were uh, listening to talking snakes is what got us into this mess in the first place.
0: There used to be the idea, that, the idea that there was an adversary, you know, but it wasn't a literalized adversary. And like you're saying, that was later sort of like, hey, that serpent sucked. Let's make him this devil guy also.
1: Well, right. And like uh, another one I was going to mention is in Job. Is Job, right? Where. My understanding is that originally the advers- the quote unquote adversary was was not the adversary of God, but he was the adversary of those who would defy God, and he was sort of right. like god's uh prosecuting attorney or something huh. and so in that story, that makes a lot more sense to me that you know God and his right hand man as it were are making bets about how humans will behave rather than like God and the devil hanging out making bets that that's a little weird.
0: Which is, yeah, it's like the weirdest buddy movie I've ever made. Uh, well, yeah, I mean,
1: there's this verse in Ephesians where Satan is referred to as the prince of the power of the air. And what what uh, the Bible geek said is that, that actually, you know, apparently there's actually nothing in the Bible that suggests that the, that the devil is in hell uh, or rules over hell, you know, the underworld or anything like that. And that actually that this Prince of the Power of the Air thing suggests an earlier version of the story in which, you know, Satan kind of ruled the lower heavens. You know, he would sort of been kicked out of the upper heavens. And so he had no place to go except kind of the crummy, you know, the lower, lower heavens. Re-
0: regions of the sky. And uh, those have terrible public schools. Down there. It's awful. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, there's more, more in New Testament, I think, because that's when we start getting more demons and stuff. But still, I think it's still pretty not consistent.
1: Okay. Well, actually, I, I wanted to mention, uh, speaking of the New Testament, the uh, the story of the Gerasene demoniac, which I, I just think is funny. If, if you don't know the story, basically, uh, there's this guy who's possessed by demons, and Jesus shows up and convinces or, you know, sort of causes the demons to leave this guy's body and go into some pigs who then go and drown themselves in a river. Apparently 2,000 pigs. And I just think this is an extremely strange story.
0: (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Also, who has 2,000 pigs? (laughs) Like, like they just totally wiped out the pig wealth of, like, one of the richest pigmen in all of, like, (laughs)
1: Dia. It it does suggest a pretty high sort of exchange rate for demon, you know, sort of human-to-pig demon possession. I mean, you know, if you... uh, (laughs) You know, you just got to, you know, if you're planning to exercise a guy and, you know, put his demons into pigs, you're going to need a lot of pigs. I mean, you know.
0: But also, you know, I think Revelations, we wind up getting, uh, you know, more of Judgment Day stuff, which is where a lot of the devil stuff comes from, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, the end times, the Judgment Day, when, I mean, technically speaking everyone's just forced to lay the fuck down in their graves and wait for judgment day at which point they will be judged and either go to hell or heaven. So, you know, technically speaking, hell is like completely 100% closed right now, empty, mm-hmm. totally empty as is heaven. All right. But so, I mean, I think a lot of our, you know,
1: image of hell is formed more by Dante's Inferno than, than by really anything in the
0: Bible. So why don't we talk a little bit about that? Notice that, The Inferno is assigned in high school. Who assigns Purgatorio or Paradiso? You know, the (laughs) other two major works by Dime. I mean, the dude labored for decades on this stuff, and we only read a third of it? Like, what are we, assholes? I mean, it's really interesting that, like, we only read the one about hell.
1: Mm -hmm, Because the other one's really boring.
0: Um, Like, in hell, they they... make you read Paradiso. (laughs) 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 That's that's the secret 10th circle for VIPs. (laughs) But also in in The Inferno, you know, it's a really interesting version of hell. It's a little like Occupy Wall Street. Like, there's no leader. There's a hierarchy and things happen. But there's really no leader. And in fact, Satan is just a giant, dumb monster down at the bottom chewing on Judas Iscariot. Like, he's not (laughs) actually in charge.
1: Yeah, he's actually, he's sort of imprisoned. He's like trapped in ice and he can't get out. Yeah,
0: up to his waist so you don't see his giant
1: satanic wang, <laughs> convenient
0: um,
1: but it, it's 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 weird that you know we have this this whole sort of pop mythology of the devil out in the world talking people out of their souls and stuff when when dante has him imprisoned and unable to to leave hell
0: well yeah exactly i mean this idea you know it's it's really interesting this idea of the devil as a tempter i mean you know they're the two parts in the Bible. i guess job and later when jesus is in the desert and the devil's trying to tempt him i mean that probably all stems from there but it's really interesting we think about because like like what does he care like what does he want to do with these souls he gets five billion and he can redeem them for a big mac like (laughs) he can't win like you know what i mean like like in christian theology unless you get into some weird dualistic kind of thing He can't win. He can't fight God. He is a creation of. So what's he doing here? Like, who's keeping score? I got more souls than you. I mean, it's a really, once you start thinking it out, it all becomes rather pointless. Well,
1: there's actually somebody asked, somebody asked the Bible geek one time, you know, why is the devil going to fight at the Battle of Armageddon if he knows he's going to lose, Right. Right. And, and the answer I thought was really interesting. I mean, the, the, he's like, "Oh, I have two answers." I mean, the first one is that it, it's just in this, just in his nature, uh, you know, like this, you know, like, and he mentioned, you know, this. Um, Aesop, I think it's Aesop's fable about the fox and the scorpion crossing the river. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so basically, like this, this scorpion comes along and says to the fox, "Hey, I want to get across this river. Could could you could you give me a ride? And if you do, I'll tell you where there's some awesome fox chow on the other side." And the fox says, hey, man, you're a scorpion, you know, I'm not going to, and scorpions, you know, sting people, and I'm not going to let you get on, ride on me. And the scorpion says, hey, if I were to sting you as we're swimming across the river, we would both drown and I would die. So obviously I'm not going to do that. And the fox like, "Mm, yeah, that's a good point. All right, I'll give you a ride. And so as they're swimming across the river, the scorpion stings the fox. And the fox is like, dude, (laughs) dude, WTF, WTF, we're going to die now. And the scorpion's like, hey, I'm a scorpion. I sting people. That's what I do. And so, I mean that the, the the devil might be kind of like that—that that, you know, it's it's in his nature to to fight, Una-
0: unable to control his, his instinct to be a
1: little devil. <laughs> but then the other thing is he uh, he was talking about in some comic book, uh, they go to hell, and there's like a different version of the Bible in hell, and in that version, it says that the that the devil's going to win, uh, <laughs> you know, the battle of Armageddon. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, each side has its version of the story. You know, right, right, saying that it's going to win. But yeah, but let's talk about Paradise Lost too. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think especially. I mean, it's. It's really hard for me to see, to to not see the story in terms of sort of like Lucifer is the underdog, and the forces of heaven are like the cool kids who kicked him out. You know, who like ostracized him or whatever. And I think even in Milton, it's been a long time since I've read it, but I think. Lucifer says a lot of uh, sort of democratic-sounding rhetoric uh, about, you know, why we shouldn't be ruled over by a tyrant, a sort of monarchical tyrant. And uh, it's actually funny. You go back a couple hundred years and read a lot of literature that just assumes that democracy is bad and uh, any character who mouths democratic ideals is just self-evidently misguided.
0: Well, it's also, you know, one of the things I think, though, the reason that happens is, A, just on a narrative level, Satan's more interesting. You know what I mean? Like, he goes from state A, being an angel, to state B, being, you know, screwing up and being in hell, to state C, eternal warfare against heaven to try to sort of regain his place or, you know, subvert mankind. Whereas God exists in state A, complete perfection, all the way through but i also think that um milton lived and i'm not sure if he died when oliver cromwell was still ruling england or right or he lived through cromwell's reign but you know that was this sort of anti hierarchical anti monarchy anti royalist Revolution, it was hideous. I mean, you know, people were dyed and mutilated, had their ears cut off and their faces mangled, and all these things because they went against the natural order of having a hierarchical king who was appointed by God. You know, it's like God's the boss and the king is his manager, and we are, you know, then there are the upper level management, and then there's us. So, you know, I think Satan comes across as so compelling because we're looking at him from a point of view now where it's like, well, That, you know, that's interesting rather than abhorrent.
1: Awesome. All right. So why don't we uh, talk about some of the sort of more modern books and movies and stuff? I mean, I think two of the most highly regarded horror movies uh, of all time are The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby. I have to say I don't honestly find them that scary. Uh, Really? I I, I kind of, maybe it's just because I wasn't raised with this stuff, but I actually found The Exorcist kind of funny. I mean... Any anytime you've got a little girl tied to a bed, projectile vomiting on a priest—I mean, that's just comedy gold, as far as I'm concerned. But I don't know, what do you, what do you guys think of those movies?
0: i mean i love i mean you know i saw them at an early impressionable age and they freak me out and they also give me a say like my favorite satan is i don't know if you know (laughs) uh jack chick like chick comic books you know the little christian tracks where where it's like you know someone does good deeds all their life and they die and it's like oh no i'm burning in hell why oh because i'm hindu (laughs) and then there's like satan on the side going ha ha like (laughs) i like the satan who's just a jerk and screws with people and that's sort of what you get from like that's the satan of rosemary's baby the exorcist like you know eh, i'm gonna go to earth and like possess a 14 year old girl and puke on a priest just because i'm a dick or like you know hey i want to like go like get laid and like hey, mia pharaoh is very cute and you know
1: I, I really i really think that stuff that involves sort of judeo-christian ideas mm-hmm. I, I have a hard time accepting just because the influence of those religions and politics sort of has irritated me so much you know, it, it just sort of, like, reminds me of how frustrating <laughs> some of those conversations are. Whereas, like, with Lovecraft or something, I don't have that same thing. But if if there were, like, people who thought that Lovecraft was all literally true and they were, like, mm-hmm. constantly trying to use the government to shove it down my throat, mm-hmm. I would have a much harder time enjoying Lovecraftian horror stories. You know what I mean? If the devil came to you and wanted to make a deal for your soul, why would you ever do it? I mean, wouldn't that – I mean, that would just prove that – I mean, because the reason that you would <laughs> – that your soul would be in jeopardy in the main would be that you don't think God is real or that you're an adherent of some other religion. Right. Yeah, but if, but if yeah. the devil comes to you with this like
0: contract or whatever, then you would <laughs> immediately. Yeah. Why on earth did the devil appear? Why would that not resolve all your doubts instantly?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's like, if, if I were the devil, say I would be going around, I wouldn't be going around trying to like get people to sign contracts for their souls. Like I would be going around like promoting science education and <laughs> Can, uh, encouraging people to study the Bible, because those seem to be the two things, in my experience, that have made most of my friends atheists. Right? <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: I mean, one of my favorite actually depictions of of Lucifer was in Neil Gaiman's Sandman, uh, where, where he's this uh, he's this sort of like really beautiful blonde man, uh, sort of yeah. radiant, and uh, and that's always struck me as much more insightful than if he's like this horrible horned monster um, because it seems like for evil to have any sort of hold over you it has to be at least superficially attractive just like if this horrible monster came to you you know and wanted you to join him or whatever you'd be like no i'm freaked out by your giant teeth and stuff <laughs> but if it's like a really good looking person yeah i mean that 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 that's that's sort of a perfect metaphor for evil to me It's sort of like a really attractive person who, you know, at first glance is pretty, but the more you sort of think about it, the more you learn about them, the more uneasy you become.
0: You know, I mean I mean that 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 Neil Gaiman hell is the one where you're only there if you think you should be there and be punished in the first place, which is problematic because that means you only go to hell if you feel guilty about what you've done. So what about sociopaths and Neil Gaiman sort of theology? They go to heaven because they have no sense of personal guilt?
1: <laughs> My family does a lot of backpacking, and so we would always backpack around all these places. And there are always uh, rock formations and things called Devil's Tower, Devil's <laughs> Bathtub, <laughs> Devil's Frying Pan—all this stuff that I always thought was really, <laughs> that I th- thought was really cool. But then it turns out that those are all the places that the, there were like sacred sites for the American Indians. And then uh... the, <laughs> then those settlers came and were like, "That's oh, that's now you know that used to be Holy Mountain, whatever. Now it's Devil's Mountain, and that's kind <laughs> of a it... dick move. I mean." I mean, did you guys have like examples from contemporary entertainment of demons, devils, hell, stuff like that that you wanted to mention?
2: Um, you know, actually, one of one of my favorite ones is uh, I, I seem to be in the minority on this, um, but there's this movie called *Tales from the Crypt: Demon Night*. Um, it's like, you know, Tales from the Crypt was this series on HBO and it was, you know, short, it was the anthology series. So it was like different short, um, stories, like, you know, week to week, different stories every week. Um, and then, and then it ended its run and then, you know, they made a movie and, uh, and, and so there's a demon knight who's like a good guy who's, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's sort of charged with fighting the demons and, and the demons are all trying to get these keys that like unlock the, that, that would allow like the devil to escape hell or something, you know, and, uh, and so it's so it's like tied in, so it goes all the way back to Jesus. It's like they have this key, and uh, there's like seven keys, and, and the demons have collected all the other keys, and there's this last one. And so there's this like final battle, like, and that's what the movie's about. Uh, what did you – I mean, honestly, when I think of like the devil,
1: like almost the first thing that comes to mind is the devil from the South Park movie.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely.
1: Which I actually thought was fantastic the, the part he sings this song, it's like the little mermaid song about, you know, if I could just live up where the people are, I mean. He's a very, very sort of sympathetic, uh, memorable character. Uh in terms of like books, I, I came up with uh The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis.
0: The interesting thing about screw tape letters is that it's not Satan, it's just two demons, which I kinda like because they're like middle level managers, you know, writing back and forth. <laughs> And, I, and actually, what's really interesting is, do you guys know Focus on the Family, the, the sort of uh, very right-wing conservative yeah. Christian group? So they have done, I mean, it's been around for a couple of years, but an audio drama of the Screw Tape Letters, uh, because, you know, C.S. Lewis, big Christian thinker. And um, so Focus on the Family did it. And the guy who reads the entire thing is Andy Serkis from Planet of the Apes and Gollum in Lord of the Rings.
2: You know, Tim Pratt recently did an anthology called Sympathy for the Devil, um, and it's just, you know, it's sort of a book c- collecting, you know, a-, a bunch of short stories uh, all on the sub, you know, all that feature the devil. And, and uh, you know, so when I was thinking about this, I mean, um, mostly what came to mind were some of the individual short stories in this book like uh actually uh, Elizabeth Bear has one called In the Deep Blue Sea and and that's actually in my anthology Wastelands as well because um, it's sort of like in this post apocalyptic setting um you know uh this this bike messenger sort of encounters the devil out in the desert you know uh th- there's just one other one that I would mention I would call out uh Elizabeth Glover has this one called Metaphysics uh which I think is really interesting because it uh it sort of um it pits a, a rational person against uh, uh the devil um, and so I, I think it's it's very interesting, uh, especially given you know um, this sort of general geek's guide philosophy of of religion and whatnot. That I, I think it would appeal to a lot of our listeners if uh, if, if we haven't uh, turned you off by all of our blasphemy um, already. <laughs> so uh, uh, let's see, Stephen King's Needful Things was
1: another one I came up with,
0: uh, which is like my least favorite version of the devil, like the sneaky guy who comes in and tricks people into being horrible. It's like, to me, that version of the devil really has no resonance. You know, he doesn't have any grandeur, any scope. Like, really, the devil's going to be spending time in some crap town in New England, <laughs> for real? But, I mean, the, the, the thing about needful things that does
1: work for me is that evil is inculcated through the, manip- through the manipulation of people's materialism. Uh, you know, their... Um, mm consumerism. Actually, and speaking of Stephen King, that reminds me, uh, you know, Stephen King's son, Joe Hill, has his most recent novel was called Horns. Oh,
0: horns, yeah. I mean, not to jump back a few hundred years, but when you read old witch trial stuff, there was always this, I mean, witch trials used to be, I mean, they were very legal proceedings. You know, they were lawyers and all that stuff. I mean, they weren't just like Monty Python, like people rounding someone up and torturing them to death. Um, but there was always this really, really big deal that was done of was this witch having traffic with satan or was she having traffic with some other demon and Mm. if what she was having traffic with said it was satan well demons lie so it could be a demon pretending (laughs) to be satan and okay witch, we are going to torture you and then burn you to death however maybe it shouldn't be maybe we should come up with something worse if it was satan and just you know if it's a demon that's kind of not as bad Um, and so, and that's why one reason like the Malleus Maleficarum and discovery of witches and and these witch hunting manuals were so useful because they sort of answered these questions. I mean, their, their answer was, you know, well, you know, just kill them anyways. Um, but it was this really, really pointed theologians really sweated blood over. Like, is this actually Satan or is it a demon or is it someone saying there's a demon saying they're Satan or Satan pretending to be a demon? Um, and it really got into this bizarre legalistic hall of mirrors. Well, I mean, I think
1: um, most most people are probably know the King James Bible, but I think probably most people don't know that that King James was obsessed with demonology.
3: Mm-hmm. And I think
1: he wrote, I mean, multiple volumes about it. And and that just strikes me that you can have, you know, just these thick tomes, you know, yeah. like <laughs> a whole library of thick tomes of information, all of which is completely just pulled up pulled out of someone's head, you know. Uh, and then just the last thing on, on my list I have, I haven't read this book either, but there's a book I've seen in the bookstore by Stephen Bruce called
0: Terrain in Hell. I actually, when you mentioned that, I, had, I have never read, but I looked it up, and it is, like, complicated. Like, it is hardcore old-school Christianity with, like, levels of heaven and levels of hell, and God wants to, like, build a new sunroom, so he needs a few extra levels of heaven. I mean, it gets really literal and, and kooky. I'm kind of curious to check it out. All right, so Grady, why don't you tell us about your novel, Satan Loves You? Oh well, Satan Loves You. I wrote uh, it's basically a book about what it's like to sort of have the worst job ever, which is running hell, and and it's sort of this fascination I've always had with sort of eternity and um, how crummy it would be to be Satan for eternity. I mean, it's like you have a job forever, and uh, and so the book itself is, is is sort of some sympathy for the devil, and and I really tried to. When you're writing about the devil, you've got to figure you've got to pick a theology and stick with it. So I went with hardcore old school, very old school Catholic theology where if you deviate and commit a sin and you just go on to hell and Hindus, hell, Jews, hell, Uh, you know, that's where you are. And it's, it's a hell based on Dante's Inferno. You know, and and then I just started literalizing things like, okay, well, it's hell. Well, there's circles, which means there's different floors. Well, who sleeps? Um, (laughs) It's sort of taking it from there. Um, And so, and when you start to really literalize things this way, God gets more and more amorphous and Satan gets more and more sympathetic. Um, You know, I mean, like. Like, I kind of have a bigger space in my heart for the dude who's taking care of the, four, the poor, deeply confused, you know, uh, uh, Hutu tribesmen who died in the 19th century without being baptized and suddenly find themselves being broiled alive in an eternal lake of fire for eternity. Like, I've got more sympathy for the dude taking care of them than the dude who's like, eh, you can go broil for eternity. Um so that's sort of where it comes from and what it is. and it's, It it's basically uh, revolves around a, a, a once every a long period of time, heaven and hell have a, a professional wrestling match where the stakes are if Satan wins, everything stays the way it is, but if God wins, they get to take over hell. And, and because demons are just generally better pugilists and more enthusiastic about violence, uh, and angels are sort of more a feat, the demons always win, but this is the first year when there's a Satan's in a clinical depression, and, and it's it looks like hell. Uh, heaven stands a chance of winning. What kind of response have you gotten to that? Really good, actually. I mean, you know i i've got I've got friends and people who've read it who are very. I mean, I had a couple of people who read it who are very devout Christians, and I mean. It's hard to find even the most devout Christian who doesn't who's who's not willing to admit that. Look, when you take these literal concepts too far, they do kind of get silly. And and they take it in the, and everyone who's read it has taken it in the spirit it was intended. One person wrote me an email that said, uh, you know, I really worry about you, and I worry you're really courting some dark forces here, and this might you know be bad for you. But I thought it was a funny book. Um, and that's <laughs> balanced by like a couple of dozen emails I've received from people uh, who claim to be, you know, oh, I'm a Christian or oh, I go to church. Because everyone, you know, when you're talking about heaven and hell, everyone feels a need to drop in a little disclaimer about personal beliefs. Who all said they had a lot of fun and really enjoyed it? Um, I don't think I know anyone. And I know some pretty Gruesomely conservative Christians who I really don't get along with in any way, shape, or form in a political way or a social way. But I can't think of anyone, even them, who would find a book about how goofy the idea of a literal Satan is at all threatening to their own personal theology. If I can sort of ramble for one sec, the reason I actually wrote this book is. Because I I really started thinking, what's the worst possible thing? Like, what would be hell? What is hell? Why does it have no power? What what would actually be hell? And I realized it's it's a job. Like, having a job that's eternal and goes on forever is hell. Like, Hmm. everyone has a job, but we all assume we're going to die at some point or retire, and it will be over. And sort of that feeling of like, God, well, what's that like when it's thousands of years? And what's it like when you've got to be creative and think of new tortures? Like thinking of new tortures for the damned is fun for the first hundred years, maybe the first – around a thousand years, you're like, I guess we'll go back to flaying again, maybe flaying and burying and boiling feces. Like, Like where's the fun? Where's the joy? And so that's sort of what led to me writing Satan Loves You, which is just like this idea of eternity is really boring. We can't handle it. We can't wrap our heads around it. And so it's really not fair to make up monsters and demons and devils and gods and make them live in eternity. We can't do it. Why should they have to?
1: All right. Well, great. Uh, So so I think we're going to wrap things up there. So Grady, thanks for joining us.
0: Oh, thanks for having me. And I'm sorry. I know I talk way (laughs) too much.
1: Um, And yeah, so thanks everyone for listening. Uh, Thanks to Chuck Palahniuk for being on the show. Uh, if you uh, enjoyed the show and you want to help us out, please go over to the iTunes store and type in Geeks Guide to the Galaxy in the search bar and bring up our thing and give us uh, you know give us a review or a rating. We're up to 108 right now, so that's really good. And,
2: <laughs> and so another way you can support the show is if uh, you go to io9 and you leave a comment because uh, the more you comment, the more io9 knows that you love us. Um, and uh, also you can tell a friend.
1: All right. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time.
2: The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of I-O-9. For this episode's show notes, to subscribe to this podcast, or for more information about the
0: show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarrcurrently.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends.